Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Today's episode features Alyssa LaFall. We're going to be talking about how Alyssa transitioned from a full-time corporate attorney into the field of student affairs. Alyssa LaFall currently serves as the Special Assistant to the Vice President for Student Affairs at Texas A&M University. In this role, she manages student conduct appeals and coordinates various student affairs initiatives within the Division of Student Affairs. Alyssa also serves on the Texas A&M Critical Incident Response Team, also known as CERT. A native of Marshall, Texas, Alyssa earned a Bachelor of Science in Sport Management from Texas A&M University, a Juris Doctor from Thurgood Marshall School of Law, and a Master of Science in Higher Education Administration from Texas A&M. After practicing business litigation for several years, Alyssa decided to follow her passion, working with college and university students. Prior to her current position, Alyssa held multiple roles in student conduct, from graduate assistant to director. Her passion in the field of student affairs is focused on student development, including developing engaged students and facilitating difficult conversations to encourage students to critically think about how they view and navigate within the world. Alyssa is also serving as the Director of Diversity and Inclusion on the ASCA Board of Directors, and her term expires in February of 2018. Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints podcast. I'm excited to welcome today Alyssa LaFall. Alyssa is the program coordinator in the Office of Student Conduct at Texas A&M University. Hello, Alyssa. Hi, Jill. How are you? I'm okay. How are you today? Wonderful. Glad to be here. I'm very thankful for you to uh, be speaking with us today, specifically about your journey into student conduct. So Alyssa's journey... uh, is a fascinating one in that she worked in full-time law practice before transitioning into the field of student conduct. So I'd really love to jump into how you kind of went from A to B. Ah, It was a windy path for sure. Uh, So I initially was an undergraduate student. I thought I wanted to go into um, athletics compliance, intercollegiate athletics compliance, and went the sport management undergraduate degree route. Uh, did an internship and had an opportunity to, to cross paths with a mentor and former professor of mine who thought, you know what, law school might be a good idea for you. Um, looking at my writing style and some of those things. and um, So I did my research. I took the LSAT while I was interning. Um, I decided to to go ahead and take the leap and went to law school, still never intending to practice, but work in athletics administration. Um, And doors opened, and then I saw the world of possibilities while I was there. I did a couple of clerkships after my uh, second year in law school and was offered a position um, within a general com- uh, litigation uh, practice group within a law firm uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. And so I went there and looked at and, and practiced general commercial litigation and then specialized more so in product liability, mass tort um, defense work and did that for about five, almost five years. Um, and, you know, I, it was great, but I, I missed home 
home and I really wanted to find meaning in the work that I was doing. And so for me, what that looked like was working with college students. I had an opportunity to um, serve in a mentorship capacity through some of our partnerships with the firm and local universities. And uh, that that's where I that, that passion was sparked. So while I was still there, I applied for a master's in higher education program here at Texas A&M and traveled and moved back to Texas, started my program, I sought a graduate assistantship, so really came in from the ground up and did a graduate assistantship within the student conduct office and uh, been uh, involved in this line of work ever since. So so that's been me in a nutshell. Uh, I've had a professional position at Texas A&M University Commerce um, that was more generalized, where my job was about half conduct and then half other special projects and working with our behavior intervention team, our care team, and things of that nature. Uh, and then uh, after a year, came back to Texas A&M University versus an assist- associate coordinator for a year, uh, and then was promoted last year to program coordinator, where it's daily management of our office. So just progressively responsible, um, progressive responsibilities uh, and just being able to interact with our staff and students a lot more, which I really enjoy. And I think just for the listeners, for clarification, you know, we have such wonky titles in higher ed and they don't mean the same thing at every institution. Uh, so if I am not mistaken, the coordinator role at A&M is the equivalent to director role at most other institutions? Correct, correct. So uh, it's the daily management of um, of everything in our office. So I do manage our budget, um, coordinate all of our assessments, supervise all of our hearing officers, um, setting our schedules. I work with our assistant director within our department, um, as well as our associate director in helping to set office policy and things of that nature. So it's it's definitely not your just entry level position. It's it's our, our titles are a little bit a little bit uh, deceiving. But um, but it's it's definitely a manage, managerial role. Well, and you have the added benefit of being on the home campus where ASCA is currently housed. How yes. Is, uh, how has that been uh, either a benefit or potentially even a challenge with being at the home of where the association is homed? Sure. It's been great by way of resources. Uh, and if we need to identify an institution that um, that may be, be experiencing similar issues or have completed a program or something that um, that might be beneficial for us and we want to take a look at it or just find peers to be able to have a conversation with, um, they are a wealth of knowledge. And so just being able to walk across the breezeway um, and, and walk upstairs to their office or just pick up the phone and ask a question and get it answered. Um, it's it's a huge benefit, um, and having left here and, and and needing some of those resources sometimes, um, it's just a lot easier to be able to walk over and, and get an answer if you need it. So so that's it's been a plus. Excellent. So Alyssa, I want to walk back a second and talk a little bit more about your role when you were working as a corporate attorney. Obviously, it's a much different world than higher education and student conduct, but what kind of skills and lessons did you find to be transferable or what was it about corporate law that has really helped bolster your career in student conduct in perhaps a more unique way than some of us who came up through more traditional means? Oh, sure. I think for me, it was a lot of the professionalism and some of those soft skills that I learned there. So the importance of building and nurturing professional relationships. I think that's extremely important within student affairs. Um, and it's extremely important when you're talking about a private practice where um, the nature of your work and your livelihood is dependent upon those networks, right? So that there's that piece. Um, I think with respect to 
emphasizing the importance of producing that consistent quality work product um, every day. So when it comes to letters, what do your letters look like? You know, something that's very small but has a huge impact and possibly could be seen by lots of different people at some point in time and what that looks like. You know, so when I was in law practice, I was constantly drafting research memos. And then um, as I progressed, different briefs and memoranda of law um, that would be filed with courts and things of that nature. So I don't want opposing counsel to look at my work and say it's shoddy or have a judge or their clerk look at it and say, "Mm, I don't know if I can trust what this person's saying because I really can't get past the first two paragraphs of paragraphs of that brief. So understanding what that looks like and getting that consistent feedback from partners, it just helped me hone that skill and develop that skill. Um, And then I think just understanding also from a big picture perspective, the practical implications of those legal and compliance decisions. So yes, I can make a decision and say and advise my client to do X, Y, Z, but if I don't understand how that impacts their work, because I've not built those relationships, I've not attempted to get to know them and how their business operates, then, um, then I'm making a decision in a vacuum and that's not helpful for them in the long term. While legally and compliance wise, that might make the best make most the most sense if I'm looking at it from the impact of their day-to-day work and their long-term stability, et cetera, then um, then then I've missed the mark. So I think pretty much that's those those key things right there helped me as I've embarked on a career in student conduct and just understanding the big picture and then focusing also on the small details. And how has your identity as a a past practicing attorney impacted your relationship with general counsel? Um, I think here our office has a great relationship um, with general counsel. I know on some campuses it can be a bit sometimes maybe even contentious um, because there's an assumption that people um, don't necessarily understand all aspects and implications of what they're doing legally and um, exposing the university to risk, et cetera. I think for us, we um, being able to speak the language matters. So I can do case research ahead of time if I've got a question and say, this is what I think the the body of law is saying about this particular issue um, instead of asking a blanket, what should I do? Um, and so I think they've appreciated the fact that we're coming to the table um, as a group and, um, and, and I've been able to do some research and say this is what I think this is interpreted as. Is this something, and based on that, this is what I think a good, prudent, reasonable decision should be. Does that make sense? Uh, and I think in the long term, that's been very helpful for both them and for us. Um, and I think that's allowed them to respect us um, in the work that we do a little bit more. Um, I think anybody can do that and anyone has the skill set and can learn how to do that. Um, but I think just being able to come in with that skill set has been, has been very helpful for us. Alyssa, you're at one of the largest public institutions in the country. How many students are at uh, A&M? Um, we have a little bit over 60,000 students, um, and we do have multiple campuses within the Brazos Valley. So we do have a health science center. We have um, another campus that is building uh, as we speak. But um, so we have about 60, I think right, just under 60, under 63 in the, in the entire Brazos Valley. So, um, so we're, we're dealing with a large number of students. And so 60,000 students, that, that's an intense number for, you know, I think any conduct officer. How many other conduct officers do you have available to work with? 
sure. So we do, within our main student conduct office, we have um, two assistant coordinators. We have uh, an associate coordinator. Um, we have myself. Uh, we have a graduate assistant who also serves as a conduct officer. And then we have residence life staff who will hear some lower-level alcohol cases, the housing policy violations, and they'll hear those um, within residence life. Um, we'll all we'll manage those in our system and maxing it together. And the same thing for our core of cadets, so lower level things that might violate um, some provision of the standard, which is their 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 handbook, their manual, um, and some of their higher level things that might also be a university violation will hear here. So we've deputized, if you will, um, a number of other units to be able to to help us with that because if we were to hear those all together, you, you could imagine we might need a really, really large staff. <laughs> Certainly. I you know, I've also worked at a couple of large D one institutions with athletics and with really large student populations. I think it's always interesting to balance uh, those town gown concerns as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, with mm-hmm. the jurisdictions and our codes, as well as the expectations and culture of the student body. So how do you find mm-hmm. yourself doing that? Sure. So we do have a, a committee here on campus um, that I'm a part of, and it's pretty neat. It's it's called Aggie Up. And so um, we, we're in a fairly small town compared to the size of our institution. And so it's definitely a college town. Our is College Station, Texas. Uh, and so uh, you hear from time to time when it comes to like development of um, housing units and what does that look like in a town that's changing the uh, the landscape of what our what the city looks like. Um, we're also talking about um, those city ordinances that are being passed um, and talking about how, how students are interacting with their neighbors. And so we've been able to, to communicate with folks all the way from um, the um, city judges, with police officers, uh, with uh, those folks in marketing within the cities, and just be able to have those concerns all at the table and develop some programs and working with different people within our department as a whole um, to try to to ease those relationships, um, as well as have a reporting mechanism and nurturing those relationships so that, hey, if you do have an issue, come to us and talk to us about it. And if we have additional information, we can follow up. So I think just doing that organically, um, and then that's that's been developed over time. It's been very helpful for us. Um, And then just getting the information to students. So now, hey, I know better, so I'm going to do better. I think that's that's really been the message that um, we've been trying to put out there and educating our students about some of those trends and issues that we're seeing. And we know that because, hey, we've built these relationships with with folks um, within um, Bryan College Station to be able to address the issues. I had the privilege of visiting College Station for one of the ASCA board meetings uh, within the last year. And what really struck me was the core of identity that happens at A&M. Every student is thrilled and proud to be an Aggie, part of the Aggieland community. Uh, So how does Mm -hmm. that play a role in your conduct conversations? Sure. So we do have core values here at the institution. And so with those core values, I mean, it's unlike anything I've ever experienced where students come in and, you know, they can rattle off all of the core values that we have. I think the application is sometimes where the gap exists. Um, And so a lot of our conduct meetings are turning it back on those core values. So um, so what core values were, were, you know, were you meeting or not meeting whenever you engaged in this behavior? A lot of students, the light bulb might go on at that point. It was like, oh, I didn't really think about it in terms of that. 
so it really guides that conversation, and I think they internalize it a little bit more versus this is a rule on a piece of paper that we expect for you to abide by because it's a community expectation. It, they, they've internalized that a lot more, and they want to be what we call a good ag. So um, how can I be a good ag if I'm not if I'm if I'm not meeting that core value or if I'm not living up to that? Then what do I need to do to fix it? And you see a lot of our students who who will embrace that. And what are some of those uh, good ag values? Um, sure. So we've got respect, excellence, leadership, uh, loyalty, integrity, and selfless service. So um, those things, especially with the selfless service, um, our students, it's interesting. Uh, community service is usually something that it's a sanction that we might be able to assign um, along with a primary sanction. But what we find is a lot of our students are completing, you know, 50 to 100 hours of community service on their own each year, whether as a part of a student organization or just because they think that that's the right thing to do. You know, it's some of those other things in, in breaking down integrity, um, breaking down loyalty, um, in respect and what does that look like? It's with respect to you know student organization um, or the versus the institution. What does that mean if it's a hazing case, for example? Um, so so it's just always breaking those things down and getting them to look at it from a different viewpoint. So I think that's a, a beautiful transition into asking you on the flip side. How do you incorporate the core values of the profession into the work that you do? So the core values being advocacy, community diversity and inclusion, education, integrity, and leadership. They sound like they overlap quite a lot with what's going on in Aggieland. Sure, absolutely. I think um, the way I do that, especially in my role um, and then how our office views our work and interacts with our students, I think um, making sure that we are educated and that we're providing what our students need in order to make those connections and be better individuals and citizens um, in, in the world that we live in. When we're talking about diversity and inclusion, making sure that we're incorporating that into our trainings and understanding bias and what does that look like in, in definitely tie it into the specifics of our campus um, and what that can look like and how we manage that. If we're talking about advocacy um, and looking at the different perspectives of the students that um, that we're meeting with, I think uh, on our campus, uh, we see a little bit of everybody. <laughs> so understanding what does, does that mean for our work, hearing their stories, hearing their experiences, and being able to bring those to the table for different organizations and committees and things that we're, 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 we're speaking with our colleagues um, about different topics and being able to, to, to bring those there and say, hey, this is an issue. If we know that that's the, the root of maybe some of the behavior issues, how can, how can we address that? Um, what's the root cause? How do we address that by way of education, by way of mentorship, um, et cetera, if we're, if we're seeing a consistent message or a consistent theme? I think from an integrity standpoint, it's doing the right thing. Letting our and from the first time that uh, we we hire new conduct officers here, um, we're, we're having that conversation about how we're treating people who come into our office, how we interact with others, um, and what does that look like and what does it mean? Um, I think we are all in this in this field. We're under a microscope, so anything that we say or do is going to be looked at and viewed probably more harshly than someone in a in a field that is is, is not as visible. We're going to do things. Let's do it the right way. Sometimes that makes 
that means making some really difficult decisions, but we want to be able to live with it at the end of the day and be okay with it. So I think those are just some brief examples of how we've um, tried to infuse some of those core values of the of ASCA into our process and into our the work that we do here at A&M, and, and we just continue to try to get better at it as well. I think you are doing a wonderful job of setting practice and best practice for the field when it comes to public institutions and especially large public institutions. You know, I think the challenge is that small institutions that are public are much different. But I think one of the common themes that we're seeing right now is uh, a return to protest and freedom of expression Mm -hmm. and student engagement with uh, core value concerns, particularly around diversity inclusion. So how Mm -hmm. is A&M prepping and and learning about and having conversations with students when when there is identity-based conflict on your campus? Sure. I think we do a number of things. I think Um, trying to get ahead of whatever might be coming down the pipeline. Um, If we know that students are having issues and we try to identify individuals who might be best served um, to and best equipped to to have those conversations, hear the concerns, um, and try to find some way to, to to. is there some middle ground, something that we can we can agree upon, um, and just uh, explaining what that what that line is? I think um, we know on our campuses, um, on college campuses as a whole, like it's a marketplace of ideas. We're here to understand. It's it's great that we all come in with different perspectives um, and we're not all thinking in the same way. Um, If we are abiding by our core values, then if we're talking about respect and integrity and loyalty and some of those other things, um, then I think it's good to have a a place to have a healthy conversation about our differences. I think if if things start to cross that line, um, you know, keeping in mind, of course, we've got our First Amendment, we've got those constitutional rights that we've got to balance. But let's have a conversation about what's going on, why you feel this way, um, and what are some healthy ways to be able to to express yourself um, and maybe protest those things that aren't going to get into a disruption, disruptive activity situation or vandalism or some of those things. And I think on our campus, just like on most other large public um, institutional campuses, we are looking at, okay, that's a challenge for us. And this year, I think it's proved to be um, one of those things that we're continuing to learn more about. Um, At ASCA this year, we had a number of pre-conferences that discussed those issues, and we were able to learn from our colleagues and see what they're doing on their campuses, especially the ones that experience this more. But learning more ourselves and just being able to have those great conversations with students, and I know this year I've had a couple um, with students, and, and they've been very fruitful. Um, and everybody has walked away understanding, okay, they feel empowered to be able to, yes, I have a voice, but also understanding, um, you know, kind of what we're what we're attempting to do as a university, um, and we're making those steps and strides towards improving areas where we might have some deficits, but, but what can we do better to, to create a space where everybody feels included? I think that's great advice, and, you know, we continue to focus on this idea of conflict resolution uh, and mm-hmm. using speech and expression as a way to encourage and also challenge others' individual expression as well. So, you know, it's an interesting time to be in the field in that regard, I think. It's time for the Public Policy and Legislative Issues Committee update. Hello from the PPLI team. I am Joanna Green, and thanks for tuning in. 
As some of the listeners are aware, from time to time, we like to say hi and provide updates from the committee about current and ongoing political trends. Be reminded, our aim is not to align ourselves with any particular party or politician, but rather offer some commentary on the issue as it relates to our work in student conduct and higher education. Protests are nothing new, but are back in the forefront once again. Discussions about protester rights and responsibilities, attending responsibility, institutional liability, discrimination, and the meaning of protests all contribute to the topics and discussions that many are possibly fearful will make its way across college campuses. As it relates to sports, Inside Higher Ed mentioned many teams were in the locker room during the anthem, which may limit the team's ability to protest. For some institutions, this may seem to be a resolution, but for many, it may not, and it seems problematic. It may present itself as a solution to avoid the conversation, but what happens if your sports team or another organization at your institution protests during an event? Does it matter if it is a silent or a peaceful protest? What if the protest is related to a speaker on your campus and is not doing a sporting event? How will your institution react? These are questions you should have discussed prior to today, but you certainly should engage in conversations if you have not so far. What is your institutional policy around reserving space on your campus for protests? Does your campus limit reservations or conversations based upon the law? Is there an expectation that students will be disciplined if they protest at or during particular events? How do you share information about institutional rules and regulations with your student body? How are you discussing free speech, hate speech, respectful dialogue, and more on your campus today? Hopefully the questions above have caused the light bulb to go off in your head and you are prepared to bring the conversation to the table and address concerns and thoughts that many are likely wondering on your campus but may be cautious about asking. As the saying goes, Stay ready so you do not have to get ready. If you have a foundational basis to lean on when a situation occurs on your campus, you're not simply lost scratching your head when a situation erupts. That is it for now. We would also like to hear from you. If you have any ideas of trending issues or hot topics or would like to share a general discussion with either Preston or myself, please feel free to reach out to the PPLI committee. We welcome you. Thank you so much, PPLI. And now back to our conversation. Alyssa, I'd like to transition a little bit and ask you about advice. So you've you've made a very thorough transition from a full-time attorney to a student conduct professional. How did you go about learning the language of higher education and student affairs given your roots in corporate law? And what advice would you give to other attorneys and other folks that are trained uh, in maybe the private sector that are looking to transition or have transitioned uh, into the field of student conduct? Sure. I think that's a a great question. For me, um, you know, I did, I came in on the ground up, from the ground up and did the whole re-education process itself. Uh, and being a graduate assistant allowed me to be able to do that in, 
in measured doses. And so learn, I had a great supervisor who um, is our Texas State Coordinator, Makiba um, Moorhead, who um, made sure that I understood the foundational issues and understood, okay, this is this is what it means to do this work. These are some of the um, the principles that we follow, um, and and that's been great. Learner is my number two strength, uh, number two strength with uh, with Strengths Quest and Strengths Finder, and so I'm constantly reading, I'm constantly learning, and reading articles and figuring out what are the major things that impact our work um, and what do I need to be mindful of Uh, and and so those things so just reading everything that you can um, having conversations with people in the field learning more about their path to get there I'm pretty sure you know this as the president of ASCA um, there are so many different paths to, to be where we are. Uh, and so learning from folks who have a different path from you, what are their strengths, um, what do they bring to the table, um, and balancing that out. You have a lot to offer as someone who is um, – who, who might be a, have been a practicing attorney or has a JD and has gone to law school. So what are those things that maybe you can share um, and then exchange with someone who has come up through a more traditional um, path in student affairs? So just reading everything that you can, those are articles, not just the, the legal cases. The case precedent, of course, is going to be really important for what we do um, and, and understanding why we are required to do certain things. Um, but, you know, some of those softer skills are just as important, um, if not more important at times, um, to be able to manage people and situations and having those very robust conversations with students about real life things. It's not always just about, oh, um, they had a case of beer in their room and decided to invite everybody over. So what are some of those underlying issues and talking about student development theory um, and talking about how do you have meaningful conversations um, in some of those from some of those counseling classes. And there are a number of ways to be able to to obtain some of those skills, but just seek them out and recognize that, hey, I might be at a deficit here, but it's nothing that I can't, I can't learn. Do you root your practice in any particular theory? Um, You know, I think um, Kohlberg, for me, it's probably very, it's, it's, directed specifically at this work. Um, And then, of course, if I'm dealing with different students with different identities, just being able to at least identify this might be a situation. Of course, we can't blanket apply every single theory to every single student, but um, at least I know um, at this point in the conversation, (laughs) this might be where they're coming from. Um, And then recognizing, okay, this might be how I I can approach the conversation I have with them about next steps. Think from a a decision-making and a conduct basis, Kohlberg is, is, is one that, you know, it's kind of my back pocket <laughs> and looking at where they are and, and understanding, okay, we're probably, the light bulb might not go all the way off, but hey, let's let's move you um, hopefully in this conversation to a point where you can at least think about, okay, how my interactions and behaviors might be impacting not just myself, but other people. Yeah, so I think that's, that's those are kind of my, my go-tos. So you mentioned that you do a lot of reading. Um, what else are you reading right now? What would you like to recommend to the listeners? Sure. I think right now on my desk, I've got Bill George's Finding Your True North. I think for me at this point in my career, um, just trying to figure out what, what does that look like for me long term, um, both personally and professionally, and, and trying to figure out what are those things that make me tick. Uh, I think so often in student affairs and in student conduct, we're so focused on um, other people and what makes them tick and what's going to help them grow and learn and develop, especially if you're a supervisor. 
But what does that mean for you? Um, and what does that look like for you? I think at some point we're never too developed or um, too seasoned to, to go back to the drawing board and say, hey, you know, maybe things have changed for me. Uh, maybe my situation personally has changed or maybe um, my professional goals have shifted in some way, but I can't quite articulate it. And so um started reading this about a, a, a couple of weeks ago. And so that's been, it's been pretty good. Hopefully um, I'll have some sort of plan or loose plan. I think if you always have a plan, you can always adjust as necessary, but, um, but it, it's a good good way for me to reflect on um, on my life experience so far and then planning what's yet to come. I really appreciate you kind of bringing it back to the root of us as individuals because I, I agree with you that I think a lot of conduct officers were outwardly focused and not necessarily so inwardly focused. Uh, Alyssa, I think anyone who has met you would agree that you're generally like a pretty together human being and you always look like you're you know positively engaging with the world so do you have any self-care advice for the uh, for the audience ah I think sometimes I need to take my own advice for self-care um, um I think for me it largely it is finding what is your outlet that is completely separate from folks at work, um, from the work you do, I, you know, and just being able to to totally disengage and recharge, like truly recharge. Um, and um, I had an opportunity to do that a couple of weeks ago, and, and it was amazing. So I think sometimes with the work that we do, it's very heavy, um, especially if you're dealing with a lot of the Title IX and um, Title IX level work. Uh, and it, at times, emotionally, it can be draining as well. And so sometimes I think it's helpful to not have to worry about a deadline. It's helpful not to have to worry about a phone call or kind of what's coming next down the pipeline um, and just finding whatever that is for you and being able, if you can take um, some leave, um, you know, for a week. Um, I know some folks can manage two weeks or whatever that looks like. Just being able to disengage and then come back and refresh. I think overall it helps your work level, quality of work, what your interactions with other people, um, and they can, they can tell. Uh, I think that's been helpful. Um, I think also just finding different ways to maybe expand what you're doing every day so it's not always um, the conflict management um, and maybe some of the the more um, the more intense uh, moments that we experience in conduct uh, and I find that that has been great for self-care sort of ongoing through that throughout the year um, and just being able to if you're a creative person so is there something that's going to allow you to, uh, to to do maybe event management or planning because that's relaxing to you versus somebody who does it every day might be like this is my mountain uh, so being able to do those things I think has um, it, it allows me to do some mini reset, resets throughout the year um, and then just taking some time to, to do things that I enjoy meeting with my family um, and, and traveling and doing those things, it, it's, it's done wonders for me. Um, and I'm, I'm consistently looking for ways to do better in that area. Uh, but, you know, it, it takes some trial and error as well. What works for one person is not going to work for, for everyone. But tweak it, figure out what does work, and then stick to it and commit yourself to doing so. And Alyssa, any final thoughts for folks that uh, are recently transitioned in from full-time law or from a legal background? Just enjoy the journey. 
enjoy the journey. I think that's the one thing that um, I have to remind myself of and uh, reminding yourself why you got into this work. It can be, I think, if, if someone is looking for a line of work that's not as intense and, and maybe not as difficult, it's that it's not that. <laughs> um, it's it's, <laughs> it's challenge um, and you're dealing with people and you're dealing with lives. Um, I think for me as a, as a corporate attorney, a lot of what I was dealing with was, um, was the financial side of things. It was money. You know, there were cases um, involving people and you were sitting across from people who had some very terrible things that may have, may have happened to them in their life. But for me, I think it was um, just looking at it from a perspective of I have an opportunity to make a difference in remembering the big picture. Um, and I think everything after that will help you help help to guide you where you want to be and where you need to be in this field. Um, if it is learning as much as you can, if that's networking with people um, and being re-energized in this work and from time to time we have to do that. That's one thing I love about the annual conference is that I get to see colleagues that I met, you know, four or five years ago and um, and it's, hey, how are you doing? You know, they understand the struggle. They understand some of the difficulties that we deal with, but they also understand the successes and we can celebrate those successes together can all get together and, and say, you know what, we, we've got each other's backs and it's okay. Uh, we understand what you're going through. We can teach each other. We can share what we've learned um, and we can learn from others' um, missteps or and their successes. So um, I, I think that's been um, one, that's one thing that I'll, I'll, I'll say um, to folks who are entering the field and want to continue to go into student conduct and build a career within it. Um, everything's not going to be sunshine all the time, but there are going to be plenty of days when you have students who come back and say, hey, you made a difference in my life. It's, and it might not be immediate, but it, it's definitely worth it. And what about the flip side of that? What about uh, student conduct officers who are looking down the the pike for their terminal degree and they're going, I don't know about this JD slash PhD EDD route. What mm-hmm. advice would you give to them if they're considering law school? If you're considering law school, I would say know what you want to get out of it, what you want to get out of the experience. I think, uh, especially in today's economy and in the world that we live in, you know, student debt is real. So if uh, you're able to obtain a JD at uh, an expense that it's, you know, it's, it's not going to be a, a huge burden for you, um, then by all means, it will teach you so many things. The first thing I learned in law school was uh, we're going to teach you how to think like a lawyer. We're going to think you. Uh, teach you to think analytically and critically without bias and free from emotion. Um, and that's one thing that I value from a legal education um, that I'm sure you can get in other fields. Um, I'm sure you can get in other disciplines, but that's something that is that they attempt to reach you on day one with. If you are specifically looking to go into higher education um, law, I would say, hey, keep all possibilities open. Um, I think there are lots of opportunities that a law degree will afford you. So, you know, look at all the different opportunities that exist. If your focus is, I want to help people and I want to do that through the legal realm, there are so many different lines of work and so many different offices and practice areas that you can work in and do the exact same thing. And so um, don't limit yourself. Keep keep all the possibilities open and you'll find you're going to land where you want and need to be. Well, thank you so much for that. Uh, If any of the listeners would like to reach you to follow up, how might they get a hold of you? Sure. You can always reach me um, in my office 
um, and give me a call or shoot me an email. Um, I'm, I typically am not um, as social media savvy, and if so, it's more of a personal round. But um, here in the office, you can give me a call. It's going to be 979-847-7272. Or just shoot me an email, and I'll be more than happy to engage and chat with you. And that's going to be Alyssa um, underscore and that's A-L-Y-S-S-A underscore L-E-F-F-A-L-L at studentlife.tamu.edu. So Alyssa underscore LaFall at studentlife.tamu.edu. And I'll be more than happy to chat with you um, if you've got questions just about maybe what we do here every day um, or if you just have just want to have somebody to chat with about careers in general. I think that's always been helpful for me as a professional. So my door is open. Excellent. And if you'd like to reach the podcast, you can email us at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com. That's ASCAPodcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at ASCAPodcast. Thanks so much, Alyssa, for sharing your viewpoint. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for having me. Hope everyone has a great day. Next week on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we welcome Karen Joshua Wathell. Karen will be speaking with us about the intersection of disability support services and student conduct. For those of you who have been huge fans of the case law update at the annual conference, we do in fact touch on miniature ponies, amongst many other things. I hope you come back and join us. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, co-produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for featured guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCA Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs>